Matt McInerney, New York. Andy Mangold, Baltimore, Maryland. Dan Auer, San Francisco. It's May 22nd, 2014. This is On The Grid, episode 66. This week on the show, we talk about finding furniture to buy on eBay or Craigslist or Etsy and devices designed to fight technology. Here we go. Gentlemen, how was your week? Andy, I hope maybe you would actually be proud of me. I, I purchased something on eBay, and I know that you're big on the eBay. Did you say I'd actually be proud of you like I'm never proud of you normally, Dan? Are you just going to twist everybody's words? God. No, I just, you're the one that seemed to come across like you didn't think I was proud of you. No, no. I'm so proud of you. You're such, uh, such good stuff. No, I bought something on eBay. What did you buy on eBay? I want to hear all about it. Okay, so context before that. So the apartment that we moved into is in an old renovated warehouse. So there's this big structural steel beam that's on uh, the outside wall of our apartment. And it, it feels very industrial, a little bit more rustic. It's very cool. But the windows that we have that we're able to open up are like five and a half feet off the ground. So we needed some sort of a ladder. Okay. And I figured that maybe the best, uh, may, maybe the best get up for that, maybe like an older industrial stepladder, like the kind that can roll. And mm. so we found one. I ended up being down in Ontario, California, which is like, uh, like six hours away. Um, so it got delivered yesterday, and it is definitely worth the purchase. Um, it goes great with the place. Nice. And I am super glad that I went and got something like that off of eBay rather than trying to find something shiny and new because it would have stuck out like a sore thumb. I'm so proud of you, Dan. Thank you. I don't tell you that often <laughs> enough. I really should make a better effort to tell you. Did you snipe this auction? Was this a buy it now? Did you make an offer and then go back and forth with the seller? What kind of purchase was this? Honestly, I just did a buy it now. Like, I didn't want to do too much of a did, You did the bin? Yeah. Throw that bin in? Well, if it was a good price, it's a good no, price. It was, you know? and it's only good. Yeah, it was a great price. That's, that's great. Yeah. So it, Well, I am very proud well, of you. Well, thank you. It was just one of those things, like, when I saw it, it was basically like, okay, yep, that's the one. Yeah, see, eBay purchases can go either way. It's like, you, when you get it, it's either everything you had dreamed of and more, or it's just way worse than you ever could have expected from the pictures. Yeah. It always goes one way or the other. I, just, I never, never do not. I'm never like on the fence about an eBay purchase when it finally arrives. Yeah. Have you listened to that This American Life where that woman yeah. is trying to purchase furniture <laughs> and she thinks she finds a great deal, but she yeah. just actually purchases tiny furniture? Yeah, she, she bought a dollhouse table. Yeah, it's pretty what? great. <laughs> yeah. I actually am in the market for a TV stand. I've been trying to find one. I've been, I've been Craigslisting for one because there's so much stuff in New York, but yeah. everybody has the same Ikea yeah. furniture yeah. in my price range. And they're all trying to sell mm-hmm. it. Yeah, and it's all junk. And but I, my girlfriend and I made a very conscious decision that we're not buying any more junk furniture because we've gone yeah. th- like we've gone through a couch in our in our relationship wow. already. Like we purchased the couch together and destroyed and it by sitting on it gently. It. <laughs> yes, death by a thousand paper cuts. So we're not getting any more junk furniture. But is eBay a safe place to buy furniture? I never really well, so, thought of it as, mm, that's as good that. So if you're in New York, so here's the thing with furniture. So if you're in New York. Uh, you you can find as much furniture probably on eBay in New York only as you can on Craigslist. Uh, so New York yeah. is a pretty good bet for furniture, actually. Um, usually I would advise people against eBay for furniture unless it's sort of a small thing. You know exactly what you're looking for uh, because you can't see it for the most part ahead of time. Uh, and shipping is usually going to be uh, obnoxious. Something is actually really good is Etsy, too. Like for a TV stand, I know there's a lot of like... Uh, a lot of woodworkers, like, you know, local woodworking people are very accessible on Etsy that otherwise you wouldn't be able to find or hire to make you something. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, for a very, very reasonable fee. I was going to say made out of felt, but I like made out of wood. Yeah. That's good. No, not made out of felt. 
my God. <laughs> you can get a nice beaded TV stand uh, made out of old corks from wine bottles. So you just put it all together and it uh, holds a whole TV, believe it or not. Interesting. Um, that's, my, that's my other recommendation for sort of non-mainstream furniture is Etsy and, uh, and yeah, eBay and just make it local only and see what you can find. There's been plenty of furniture I've wanted to buy on eBay that has been in New York uh, that I have not been able to buy because it's too far away. I don't want to pay shipping. Oh. That's Andy's furniture recommendations for the day. I trust you on furniture. I feel like I'm only recently uh, attempting to not buy IKEA furniture, and uh, it's a long road. Let me yeah, tell you, it's started, hard. It's very di- much more difficult. I've been doing this for maybe a full month now. Yeah. And, like all I want to do is get the right TV stand. So yeah. I have the I have my apartment layout in my head. I'm ready to go. Mm-hmm. I just need a place to put the TV. I can't do it yet. It's very tough. I've, I've been trying to buy proper furniture for a year and a half, uh, and so far I have bought one rocking chair, one dining table, which is a fairly recent purchase. Uh, and bed frame. That's all I've been able to find in a year and a half of like looking for legit furniture. It's it's a long road. I every, but it's it it's is. a noble it's a noble path to walk. And I think and it's... the selling of the furniture can be difficult. We sold a uh, kitchen island. Mm-hmm. It actually was. I felt very bad for this girl because we sold a kitchen island. We said it, you know hundred bucks if you come pick it up. Mm. And this literally pick it up. Just literally one come, arm pick it up. It had wheels, but this girl came to our door. Like much smaller than I would than expect the for a person island. who was going to carry. Yes, smaller than the kitchen island. And had wheels, and we're like, oh. And she just started walking down the street. And we're like, do you want to get a cab or do you need help or something? <laughs> she's like, no, I'm just rolling it to the subway. And like these rolling wheels it are to not the like subway. gigantic. They're not like casters you'd find wow. in like a huge amp wow. or something. Like it's not like casters on yeah. a cab. No, it's an IKEA it is like caster. Little or whatever. tiny. Yeah, it was a it was a relatively nice island was. actually, <laughs> but they're pretty small casters. And I was like. We may never see her again. Like Rolling we're definitely not going to see her again. But maybe no one's going to see her again. Wow. I was a little bit worried. I hope she survived. I really admire that kind of uh, of sort of urban, you know, stick to itness. You know, I, I live in a yeah. city. I don't have a car, and I'm gonna go pick up this piece of furniture. And I don't give a fuck. I really admire that. I'm the kind of person that has strapped things that are way too big to my bike before and biked home with mm-hmm. them. So I, I sort of know that that road. Oh, I always factor in the cost of a cab to the furniture. Like I just think. It's not worth it. I am very much in, in when it comes to moving things, I will pay a mover, I will pay for the cab. It's just not worth it. You're missing out on so many stories though. Think of the stories you could tell about you with your new TV stand on the L train. I don't know, man. I had a friend growing up whose father would always try to put too much stuff in his trunk. And there are, I have more than one story of getting out in the middle of the highway and trying to pick up like like a lawn chair <laughs> in the middle of the road. Wait, so so much stuff the trunk wouldn't even close. More like just port. Like this table shouldn't fit in the back of the truck, so we're just going to do it with the tailgate down. And we'll strap it down, and that mm-hmm. never worked. And that's a tough yep. one. Well, today was our thirty-year anniversary dinner for Friends of the Web. Wow! Uh, just Ooh. earlier this evening, we it's our third-year anniversary right around this that's time great. of year. We don't really pick up a specific date. We have the date we filed the papers, but it doesn't really mean much. Uh, so yeah, three years, and it's also we're saying goodbye to two of our, our part-time employees who both graduated from Micah just uh, on Monday, yes. off into the big bad world. So uh, yeah, it was a really nice little dinner. I'm oh, very well, happy, great. proud of us. Good for you. We're approaching a two-year podcast anniversary at some point. Fuck? That's crazy. I think two years, right? We've technically done. Well, yeah. we've done two end-of-year specials. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's going to be two years real soon. Uh, I feel like it was like mid to late summer because the first episode, I, I know because I've listened to it a couple of times. The first dumb thing I said was that we were podcasting from inside a convection oven i was trying to be so cool wow this was an article that andy posted and i'm going to introduce because andy introduces everything and it's called why anti-tech is in style literally which is yeah 
<laughs> I don't like the title. <laughs> it is a post on Yahoo, and it's about all of this, you know, anti-technology, mostly, mostly like garment wearable things. Like, for example, like a pocket that will disrupt a cell phone or a mask that you can wear that is a print of somebody else's face that will confuse facial recognition technology or a little thing that you wear on your shoulder that's going to tap you on the shoulder every time there's a security camera around. And more so than the examples, uh, you know, whether they are good or bad, I think they're kind of they, they tend to be more art projects than they are like practical uses in your life. But it's just more about the kind of the zeitgeist and the cultural sentiment that we're heading towards of one, not trusting, you know, the technology that's being developed and actually like I, I kind of appreciate the punk attitude of we're going to make these simple little devices that are are screwing up these things that you're trying to design that, you know, under the guise of like we're making the world better. But is it actually making the world better? And we're going to we're going to actively work towards disabling these things. And it is I mean, you, you explained it well, like these things are all anti-design, like actively anti-design. It's not like. Oh, regular mechanical watch is not designed. It's like, I'm sorry, anti-technology, not design. Um, right. And my friend, like most of the things on the list, there are a few exceptions, and most of them were something that blocked your cell phone signal. And these are all things that you would choose yourself to like use, I guess. And so part of me was like, there's airplane mode. Like, why, why do you have to have a little pouch that you know you put your phone in when you're like, you know, fighting the man, uh, than just putting your phone in airplane mode. Uh, which I think does all the same things. We talked a little bit about too, about like, you know, reading of RFID signals and stuff uh, from other people, not just your own cell phone signal going out, but people reading your, your signal. Uh, and I think that will be stopped as well with the airplane, but I'm not positive. Um, so I, in some ways I thought it was a little bit silly. I did really like the sort of poetic notion that someone had, that, you know, there's this big complicated technology infrastructure uh, built up around us. And yet you can sort of foil the whole thing with a little pouch, just a little fabric pouch and everything breaks. And you compare that to like, you know, when I go online in a public Wi-Fi network now and I'm like, Oh, I got to go on my VPN to make sure that none of my web traffic is being interfered with. And I have to log into this thing and use my two factor auth. And like, there's this whole universe of complexity. And I feel like I'm kind of, you know, armored up to venture into the great internet. Uh, or you could just get a pouch and then you're also safe. That was a very interesting uh, poetic moment in that piece. Yeah, it, it, it does kind of feel a little bit weird that all these things are associated with things in the fiscal realm where a lot of the stuff that people are things that people are more scared about are the things that they can't control that are digital. Um, like all the things that like being scraped, uh, from like Facebook or just like the NSA or whomever, uh, scrape scraping, like either your traffic or, or your personal data or anything like that. It's just funny that like, if that is the threat and what people are coming up are pouches and shirts and pants and masks and everything like that. This is, I don't know. I kind of don't get why people are doing it. No, actually, so here's what I think is interesting is that what you kind you're starting to hit on it, Dan. And I think what it is, is that Andy, yes, you can put your phone in airplane mode, but how do we know that airplane mode is actually doing what mm. the Ooh. device says it is? Mm. This is, this is about distrust. You know, it, it, it's about, we want, we want a simple pocket and we know what this is doing. Like, this is a simple pocket. It's it's not made of metal, but you know they line the insides with metal or whatever the whatever the the physical thing is that that gets it to work. We need simple devices that human beings can understand because I don't trust that yeah. this device is doing what we tell it to do. Yeah. And I I think this is interesting for our profession and for what we do every single day because we talk about we talk so much about simplifying the process and essentially hiding what is actually going on in your well, in, you know, kind of your day-to-day life, you don't necessarily know that this interface is doing what it's telling you that it's doing. And 
to the point where we've simplified it so much, we need to come up with these brute force devices just so we can feel secure about what our phone is doing, what the facial recognition software is doing. Like, we don't have any trust in the devices. We're going to come up with the simplest possible method to make sure you trust in whatever you're doing. Yeah, now that you mention it, this is something that, like, I could totally see my dad being super into and him buying one of these things and being like, oh, look, I put my phone in here and then it's, you know, safe. And me being like, why wouldn't you just put it in airplane mode? And him being like, but it's in a pouch and that feels safe. Like, I, I, I get it. I think you make a good point that this is, uh, it's more approachable and it's more understandable. It's like, this is the pouch. You put it in and it's all safe. Do you see these as like practical products, Matt? Or do you just see them as more like art kind of experimental statement kind of things? Like, do you think there's going to be a market for this kind of stuff that's significant in the future? No, I well, I'm sure there's a market for it, but I don't think it's a significant market. But I think it is. I think it's a statement. It's probably the same market as there is for like tinfoil hats. Yeah, exactly. But I think it's a statement. Like, wh- why do we trust the people designing the devices, the people programming them? I don't trust them. It reminds me in, in some ways of like people distrusting scientists about like, you know, climate change or something. Problems that are complex enough that the the layman can't understand well, then we're going to distrust just because we can't dig into it. Or actually, it it goes beyond that, though, because that is an example of something you actually could decide to research and you could decide to look into. But what we're talking about is something that's kind of closed source. Like, you're not going to be able to dig into the iPhone code and find out what's actually going on. So the only real way to know is to put it in the pocket. Yeah, and I'm assuming, of course, we're trusting the pocket-making people. Uh, And I guess, you know, the idea of a Faraday cage is a little more easy to understand than you know, complex circuitry, but the average person probably does not know what a Faraday cage is and how it works. Um, so right. there's still a level of trust there. And I, I think it's interesting that, like, like no, I, I said I don't trust the people that are making these things, and it's true, I don't. Uh, I've seen the in, inner workings of some very big and very prominent companies, and that even more leads to my distrust of them, frankly. Uh, but the alternative is kind of living off the grid as far as I see it. Like, if you're going to participate in the system at all, you kind of have to go whole hog, uh, you know, and that's the only way to really do it, I guess, or, you know, choose to abstain and kind of live a parallel life with the rest of society, which is going to continue to, you know, grow and advance and innovate on things. Um, and I guess I've sort of accepted the risks of being part of society uh, because that's what it means in 2014 in a civilized, you know, first world country to be a part of society. Yeah. I, I think the the part that this makes me think about is, the idea that we just have faith in the systems that are working. We have to put our faith in this, you know, in this system the same way that you might a religion is like a little bit more scary when you think of it that way. And like to me, technology is much more like science in that you, Matt, and me, Andy, and you, Dan, we don't understand, you know, one one millionth of the science that is out there in the world, but we understand how the system is structured. We understand that science works on this sort of system of you know, having a hypothesis, making conjecture, testing your hypothesis, and making sure that, you know, the real-world evidence sort of backs up whatever hypothesis you have. And this system is something we believe in, and we sort of understand how it works. And even if you and I don't understand necessarily exactly this one thing about physics or this one thing about, you know, quantum theory, we understand that it's part of this bigger system which we have accepted into our lives and sort of, you know, put our trust in. Um, And to me, religion has always been the antithesis of that. It's that there is no system. The system is that you don't ask questions and you know, you take things as they're presented to you without sort of digging any deeper. Uh, and technology is more like the, the first, I think. Like, there is a system there. Uh, and if you want to understand it, you could. The, the stuff is there for you to learn. You could learn the code to understand how an iPhone is built if you wanted to. Uh, you may not be able to see the actual code, but you would still 
you know, be able to make very good guesses about what they did and how we did it and why. Um, and like, it's available to you in the same way that, like, scientific knowledge is. Um, but right, right. The, the system is admittedly not as beautiful. Like, the, the scientific method, this beautiful system of, you know, testing our knowledge and constantly improving it and never taking anything for granted uh, is not how technology works. Technology is basically uh, a wing of capitalism. And <laughs> we all know how capitalism works, and it's not so great. Uh, maybe we don't necessarily, you know, throw our hats in with capitalism the same way we throw our hats in with with science right so I, I think that's where my sort of pause comes from like whenever i'm using anything especially if i'm not paying for it i'm like they are making money somehow or they are hoping yeah. to make money somehow and <laughs> what are the ways in which that can happen because in this e- ecosystem in this technology world we live in things do not exist unless they are going to make money that's just a fact yeah and i don't i don't want to pretend like i'm i i, I think it's that much like a religion or anything i you know Obviously, one step is like, of course, this is indeed science in action to see something like this work, to see a phone send a signal to another phone, for in example. Um, yeah. Have you guys been sure. watching the, the high def feed from the International Space yes. Station? Oh, I have not, actually. Oh, <laughs> it's the most amazing. It's like the most amazing future thing. I have it open in a tab pretty much all day. They have a 24 hour Ustream feed uh, from the ISS in HD that's like fucking incredible. It's so great. Um, but that's like, that's a thing where it's like, I'm still amazed that we can do that as as like a bunch of monkeys that like walked out of the forest one day and decided to, you know, start doing stuff with their thumbs uh, that we, you know, now have a thing in space that is constantly sending this signal back uh, to Earth that we can anyone can watch if you have access to the Internet, like all 1.7 billion people have access to the Internet can watch that whenever they want, which is pretty amazing to me. It, the, you know, the reality is this is indeed science in action. You could remake the code and test it yourself. The the closed system makes it a little bit difficult, and, like, you're kind of – that is where the distrust comes from. But here's the question. Are we designing interfaces that are far too obscure, or are we, like, attempting to obscure the actual nature of what these things are doing? Or are we attempting to obscure what these devices are actually doing or what the application is actually doing to the point where, like, we're the reason for this distrust? I don't necessarily think mm. so. Um I think it's uh, you have to meet in the middle at some point because people have to gain knowledge to be able to learn whatever you're providing at some point. Like if it's a piece of software, they have to have a general sense of how software works, how the devices work, so on and so forth. But you know, for us, we can't expect them to know how to write the code. We can't expect them to know like what's going, what's everything going on underneath the hood. Um, because if we expected that from them, it would not be usable for just the the regular person. So I think in a very broad sense, I I think we're still in a good place with it, but I do think that some of, sometimes it goes beyond the threshold. Um, maybe even some of these apps that are like actually taking action in a hidden sense, kind of like how uh, uh, some of the new Foursquare stuff is uh, intending to do it or how like highlight did it back when they were still halfway relevant, like those sort of apps where it like it's taking action for you and you may or may not know it. And you may or may not know what is taking action on is a, probably going beyond the threshold of what we should be doing as designers. I, I think you may be onto something that like, I, I do think that maybe we are sort of in a roundabout way, the result of this distrust, but I don't know if there's an alternative. Like, most people, and by, I say most people, like all people pretty much, uh, like don't really care about how their problem is getting solved. They don't care about software. They don't care right. about whether it's in the cloud or whether it's on a local machine or how it's licensed or any of this stuff. They just care that 
they can do their taxes or they can send a message to their friend across the world or they can, you know, order something they need to have in their life and they get that sort of thing done. Uh, and I feel like just the, the natural, you know, grain of the system is that the things that do that without causing the person that is using it any mental anguish or any sort of, <laughs> uh, you know, any sort of uh, friction, for lack of a better word, I'll say it again. Um those are the things that are going to win out, like the, the things that are the easiest and are the most pleasant to use. And, and being pleasant very often means kind of ignoring the reality. And yes, you just put your credit card into this uh, system. And yes, we did everything we could to possibly secure it. But here are the myriad of ways people could possibly uh, have hijacked the signal on the way. And if you're on a public Wi-Fi, you're not using VPN and someone probably has your card right now. Uh, like there's all sorts of ways we could expose the system a little more and sort of show a little more of our hand and what we're doing. But I, that wouldn't that wouldn't win out in this ecosystem now maybe someday will come where like people's distrust is so great that that is what they'll demand uh, the masses will demand to sort of understand how things are working but we're very very far yeah, from that it, i think and i think a good example of um how this like this weird balance happens is like you're in a shop you go to buy something you're at the register and then you go to swipe your credit card most times it just says like authenticating or like whatever the 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 standby thing is that shows up on the screen and then it says approved What's really right. going on is like it's, you know, having to connect to a different server, having to go through all these different checks. Like there's all of these different steps that uh, very few people know actually goes on. But then, you know, at the end it is approved. And what does somebody actually care about? Like what's the most efficient thing to communicate to somebody? It's pending and then approved or not approved. And if we are going to displace more information to the person who's making that transaction, then there's that risk of, oh, the transaction takes longer, or maybe they have questions that the person has a register can't answer because it's a very technical thing. Like there's so many other factors that uh, come up to that where the answer eventually just became, okay, we, we do the most simple thing that the most people can understand. And then if something goes wrong, then it could be triaged at that point, or, or it just, you know, Try a different card, you know, something, something very practical. <laughs> is, is, yeah. this, is this different than, like, we're kind of talking about, like, you know, if you show the gears, you know, you, you pull back the curtain and you sort of show how everything's working, that would, as we're describing it now, sort of engender trust. But is, is, is this a different thing than the, you know, I don't know how my phone's working, so I'm going to put it in a pouch because I know the pouch will kill it for sure. Uh, or is it, is, it, is it the same? Well, I think they're connected, but they're not the same. Yeah. I, you know, I posed the question, like, intentionally to be provocative. Oh, you're so provocative. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, I, I'm asking the question because I know you guys are, you know, you'll react to it, right? But I think the reality is, like, if, if I take that to the extent that I could, the entire system collapses. Like, the idea of division of labor falls apart because, no, like, you can't have everybody be an expert at everything. So, of course, you have to simplify some processes. But I like the idea of thinking thinking that maybe, not that I like thinking about it, um, it's interesting to think about that maybe simple interfaces are causing people to distrust their devices. And as more complex processes get simpler and simpler, it's so far removed from what's actually happening that the only thing we can do is put it in the pouch. I, I keep coming back to this like science thing, though, because I don't have to understand every little thing about science to trust the system and to trust how it works. Uh, so I feel like maybe what we're saying here about, you know, showing all the ways things are working is not really the crux of it. It's that, you know, the crux of how technology is built right now is this capitalist thing, at least in this country. And we definitely are sort of the, the biggest technology market that I'm aware of. Yeah. Um, so it's like, 
you know, everywhere along the line, when I do swipe my credit card to buy something at a store, you know, there are so many parties in that system, uh, all of which I am putting my trust in, whether I admit it or not. Uh, and all of those parties main, if if not only goal is to make money, there's the person who sold me the credit card, uh, there's the vendor that is selling me the thing, there's a the company that provided the system uh, to actually swipe the card on, there's the uh, you know, merchant account that the person has to have with a processing company to make sure they can accept credit cards. Um, there's all the intermediary servers and, you know, places that are sort of hosting all this data. All of those things are purely exist to make money just because that's, there was a niche there, there was some demand and now they're filling it uh, in exchange for, for money, I guess. Um, is is there a different way to, to build technology? I mean, I guess like this kind of artist's approach of technology for technology's sake or something that is you know, not at all a sort of viable business, but still some technology thing um, is maybe an alternative. I guess you could look at things like open source. I feel like yeah, open that's source what I was going to say. I think open is... source is a different way of building it. It doesn't necessarily solve the problem. And also, like, I feel like I should say, I feel like I'm constantly the like pro technology guy. It was just like, yeah, it's the new technology. You got to deal yeah. with it. And it's interesting to put my head in in the other space and be like, I'm you know, I'm against this because I don't trust it. Like, it's just an interesting thought experiment. But generally, I think like, yes, open source is a different way of dealing with it, but it doesn't really solve the problem because it's only for the people that are going to understand it anyway, which are probably the people that are already are in the profession making the stuff. Yeah. And also because people that, you know, open source and free software, as I understand it, started out not to be this great, you know, thing to help the whole world, but because that was the way to build the best software. And if you were building something that, you know, was going to accept credit cards or going to, you know, secure a massive system, then the best way to do it was to have as many people looking at it as possible and to accept their contributions if they had something to improve about it, um, which still goes back at the, at the end of the day to this sort of capitalist thing. Um, I also think it's very interesting to look at the fact that... Wait, how, wait, sorry, say that. How? So because you are building X software, uh, yeah. for example, I think the best way to look at it is lots and lots and lots of open source software libraries now uh, are backed by for-profit organizations and companies uh, that basically leverage that software to build some product. Uh, you know, it's like I have my, you know, e-commerce integration software that's open source. Anybody can go ahead and use it, put it in your product if you want. I have this business that makes sure that the code is, you know, healthy and sort of helps, you know, run the open source aspect of it. Yeah. Uh, and that business is going to also, you know, be a consulting company that will spin up an e-commerce website for anybody that wants one for, for a healthy price. Um, that is the model I see most often in the healthiest open source products is stuff like that. Uh, or it's kind of the, the trimmings, the sort of offcuts, the, uh, the collateral damage of some other for-profit organization, you know, like Twitter in their spare time made bootstrap because they got all the talented designers and developers in the whole world in the room. And they decided that if they try to change their product, they just fuck it up. So might as well work on something else and make it open source, I guess. Um, so these things are still very much tied into these capitalist structures. Cause the other thing is that even when you do look at the products and the open source projects that are not necessarily, you know, making money for anybody, they're just out there to, you know, make developers lives easier, which is also making money eventually at the end of the day, they're done by people that are in positions of tremendous privilege. They're, you know, the, the victors, they're, they're the keepers of the spoils of this capitalist system that have lots of disposable wealth. They don't need to worry about money. So I guess I might as well poke around and write some open source code all day. Cause that's a fun thing I can do. So I don't know if it's so different. I don't, I don't know. Is, I mean, it's a huge question. Like, how do you build software in a non-capitalist way in an extremely capitalist yeah, economy? Well, but th the only reason I bring it up is because I always remember there was. I wish I could place exactly like what software it was, but I, you know, it's the story of the, you know, uh, these open source developers are at this conference. They're answering a bunch of questions. This one guy asked them, like, well, 
you know, it's great that this is open source, but like, sounds pretty socialist. Like, how would you respond to that? And they just respond, we're socialists. <laughs> and so like, I, you know, I don't think it necessarily like all open source is capitalist. Like I actually think it, it, it doesn't necessarily, I don't think it necessarily fits the capitalist model. I think we just found ways to fit it into that. Um, and if you want to fit it into a socialist model, it's probably a little bit easier to do so or, you know, a number of other political systems. So I don't want to just say that's like a default. It just ha- it happens to be that we found a way to do it. We're really good at that in this country. Finding ways to fit things <laughs> yes. into capitalist yes. structures. Just squeeze them right on in there. It just kind of feels like, yeah, we, we ended up simplifying things maybe as far as it could be simplified because there's a distrust there. People feel like they actually have to add on layers, but I, I feel like it's just such a bad mentality. Start to add more things on top of whatever it exists because, you know, my question is like, okay, so you don't trust what's going on with your cell phone. Why don't you just get rid of the cell phone rather than try to put it in a pouch that it's protected at some points of the day and not others? Because you can't live in civilization. You can't get a job. You can't have friends in, like, the modern world unless you have that sort of connection. It's a, it's a real challenge. That is, like, why it is an interesting comment. Like, that's why it's an interesting piece of art is, you know, in the same way that, like, um, you'll probably see a homeless person with a cell phone faster I was than you'll say see them with a sandwich. No, and no, but that's, that's, there's a reason for that. I've worked with some homeless organizations in Baltimore, and that's actually, like— one of the first things that when you're trying to help a homeless person, at least in this city, this particular organization I've worked with, one of the first things you do is you get them a cell phone because if they can't take phone calls and be reachable, then they're not eligible for like half of the other benefits that are available to them as a homeless person in the city. Mm-hmm. So that's like the first step to trying to get back on your feet is getting a cell phone because that's how the world works now. Is like if you want to be a member of society, you need this before you need a house, before you need you know, a shower to use regularly. You need this way that we can sort of tie you into the system and recognize that if we need you for something, we can get you and you're able to call for help if you need help. And this is like the baseline. Uh, that's so crazy to me that that's like the first thing that you get. Yeah. Uh, but that, that's my understanding is like, that's how you do it. You get back into society, but you have to be reachable to, you know, participate in these programs. Yeah, but I, like, I totally get that. And I think the thing that just bothers me is that people have this notion that like there's, terrible, awful things that are going on, you know, with their cell phones or their tablets or their laptops, whatever, and they don't have much control over it. But at certain points of the day, they can make these problems magically go away as if it's going to actually improve anything about their life rather than just knowing it exists. And instead of spending so much time and effort on things like pouches, thinking more about like how could they themselves or a group of people try to just fix the problem. I mean, uh, mm, I don't know. I think there's, I don't think it's, you know, a not a reasonable way to sort of fight against the system. Like, for example, I use a VPN whenever I'm on a public Wi-Fi, but not when I'm on my private Wi-Fi. Like, there are certain times of the day where I need that protection, certain times where I don't. Mm-hmm. I could picture somebody having a little pouch or their sort of, you know, cell phone proof pants or whatever and, like, protecting their phone when they're, you know, in public walking around the city. But when they're in, you know, their own home or the home of someone they trust or, you know, somewhere that they feel trustworthy they take it out like i think there is a place for it that isn't necessarily like let's start over the whole system and you know reset everything um because that's a that's a big task to sort of do mm-hmm. that it's a pouch not a hammer <laughs> it's a pouch not a hammer is the title of this episode yep. <laughs> <laughs> you, gotta, you gotta leave them asking questions when they read that title what's a pouch and not a hammer why is pouch. more candy crush i don't get that exactly people like that title um i, I you know i'm sitting here trying to think like 
part of this that we haven't sort of recognized yet is that we're kind of uh, it's kind of recursive in a way because for all that we can lament, you know, what technology does in capitalism, I think I believe that technology as it exists today wouldn't exist if not for capitalism. Like if this this wouldn't I'm trying to like imagine, oh, what if this happened in a country that was socialist or what if we had technology in a country that was, uh, you know, some other sort of structure of sociopolitical stuff. Uh, and I think the reality is that it wouldn't happen. Like capitalism is what spawned this. So, of course, everything makes sense in this sort of capitalist way, because that's that sense of competition, that sense of like survival of the of the fittest and of the richest is what spawns this kind of technology. So it it all kind of makes sense. And the technology, I say in air quotes, because it wouldn't probably look at all like technology we have today that you get from a different system is very different, I suppose. I think the the way to like wrap this up, I guess, for me, is that you do as a designer or a developer or somebody working in technology you have to recognize that you know everything you're doing is kind of complicit in this system that very much uh, not just is born of but continues to feed capitalism and everything about it uh, in pretty much every way. Uh, it's very hard to not participate in that unless you're in a position of great privilege and you don't have to you know worry about the stuff you're doing supporting itself or making money and then you can kind of just you know make net art or whatever. But that's the thing, right? Like, it's this is capitalism incarnate because this is what capitalism bore. You know, we had the Industrial Revolution. We had all this extra resources, all this extra time, and we sort of sunk it into this thing, which is this, you know, child of the developed world that is, this is what it is. Like, this is the, the greatest extent of it. All of the, all of the stuff that happens in these te technology and these sort of web communities and all of the, like, weird classism that still exists on this supposedly, you know, equal playing field all exists because this is like this is the entirety of this is the best representation of a system that brought this technology to bear in a super cool way very fun way can i make it positive at the end <laughs> sure <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll have our happy ending later yeah. but yes i mean there are great things about capitalism like I, I don't mean to be like you know that guy the like anarchist down at the anarchist bookstore like i just it's uh i feel like people do ignore a lot that they try to pretend like, you know, technology is this thing that's open and for the people. And you can try and do that to it, but it's not what it is and it's not what it inherently wants to be. It, it is this system that will further, uh, you know, further the, the ideals on which it was built. Right. I mean, again, like, I don't know even that the technology is furthering the ideals in which it is built. The companies are, are, are building that into the technology that furthers the ideals of that company. Yeah, you can't separate um, the two. Eh, I mean, you, well, you can't you can't really imply that the technology has an agenda, is what I'm saying. That's all. No, it's not sentient. Right. <laughs> Yet the uh, the iPad didn't sit down with uh, with the Nexus tablet and be like, "We're gonna get rich and leave all these poor people behind." The drones will do that soon, but they the haven't done do it that quite soon. yet. You think about things like the one laptop per child, and it's like, man, you're just trying to throw our idea of what civilization is at this other entirely different group of people and there's probably so much better things you could do with everything we know and everything we've learned and all the time and skill we have and just be like we like laptops maybe you like laptops what if we gave you some really crappy laptops maybe you'd like those a little bit um we're talking about visualizing information and how we have learned to distrust our devices because perhaps we don't visualize enough information um, or we visualize enough that our system doesn't collapse. And maybe we, we could debate another time whether we have the right system or not. 
but or, the, thing or the visualizations say, are really uh, designed to confuse people more, more thoroughly than actually give them more new information, which is what I find to be the case all the time. Wait, what? Like, data, like visualizations of data are almost always designed to further confuse and misrepresent data than it is to faithfully represent yes. it. So that's why I have my pick for today, because I feel like this is actually, this made me, had, had me, helped me grasp um, a, piece of, a piece of information that I didn't really quite understand before. And it's called If the Moon Were Only One Pixel. Have you guys seen mm-hmm. this? I have seen it, yeah. I feel like one of the reasons I started to love design was because of infographics. And they're the kind of classic infographics, like understanding USA and like the Ed Tufty books and stuff like that. They're like, oh, this is like helps you understand information. And as time has gone on, I feel like infographics has start to become a joke in that it's just like people making numbers very large on a poster. And like that, that is an infographic now is just like making the type bigger and in a font that you think is cool, and then that's supposed to make it more understandable, when in reality, like, this has nothing to do with, like, using a visual medium to help you understand data. But if the moon were a pixel, is a great infographic that actually puts something into a scale, lets you interact with it, and have a much better understanding about how vast the universe is. And there's another site called If Earth Were 100 Pixels Wide, which I think came later, so I don't, I don't know if I want to give it credit. I think the, the moon is a pixel one is the first one. But... I love it because it actually uses a visual medium and the idea of an infographic to deliver information visually that would be much harder than if you just did it in text. So there you go. If you said this in text, it would be much harder to understand, but now I have a much better grasp of how far the moon is from the Earth, the moon is from the sun, and all the other planets. Good happy mm-hmm. ending. Do you, do you feel that way about infographics that, like, it's just, mm. they've been destroyed. Yeah. Like, the mm, idea gosh. of it has been completely mm. ruined, yeah. and... Mm. You only see a good infographic one in a million. Let me, we could have a whole show <laughs> about this, but there, there's something I, I told my students a bunch last semester, which is when someone said they were interested in infographics, I would say, listen, man, everything is an infographic and graphic design, which I think is the best way to explain it. Like, yes, you good are graphic design is an infographic because it's it, it a always visual is. medium depicting information. Yes. You have information. You're communicating it. You are always doing that with graphic design, no matter what. You have to decide if a graph and some big, giant, condensed numerals are the best way to portray that information. Hint, hint. It's probably not that very much of the time. Uh, it's probably text or images or symbols or, you know, some combination of thereof. Everything is infographics. Uh, it, it just just because you, yeah, like you said, Matt, just because you used, you know, some big condensed numbers and uh, and some brightly colored bar graphs does not make it good graphic design. So I will put a link to this because it's a very complex URL. It's like joshworth.com slash dev slash pixel space slash pixel space underscore solar system dot HTML. It might be easier to just click the link on the uh, website. Go to onthegrid.co, find the link. been on the grid episode 66 you can email the show mail it on the grid.co you can tweet to us using hashtag on the grid or find us at madam c at andy mangold and at dan hour if you want to submit a link for us to talk about in the show visit on the grid.reddit.com if you enjoy the show please review us on itunes thanks to blanking kit for the interlude music and girlfriends for the theme music and thanks to you for listening until next week You know how we were talking, God, I don't even remember when that was, when we were talking about Arrested Development.
like probably like a year or more ago, and I admitted yeah. that I have not seen the show. Still haven't seen it. Nope, not a single one. That's okay. Yeah. It's I mean, okay, it's fine. Man. Whatever. You're, yeah. It's it's past the threshold of of like the acceptable time period. Mm. You're just not gonna ever see it. Yeah, it's okay. Much. Yeah, you know what, Dad? I never heard Foghat. Well, I have heard Foghat, but I didn't know it was Foghat, so it doesn't count. Those two things are not the same. <laughs> Wait. True. Okay. You participate in whatever culture you want to participate in, Dan. Don't let anyone make you feel like you're missing out on anything. Speaking of participating in culture, thank you for mentioning the Vince Staples thing because I'm I'm participating in Andy's culture. Shine Cold Chain great. Volume Two. As so far, so good. Oh, so far, what so an great. album! Very Ooh, enjoyable. Nate, such a great mixtape. fucking song. Great God, song. Nate is such a good song. It's it makes scary. me very uncomfortable, but I like it. Yeah. Well, it's because it's so good. It, the best the best art is always emotive, man. Well, I mean, also the subject matter. I'm talking about that mostly. Well, yeah, that's what makes it emotive. If he was rapping about his dad and his dad was like a real good guy that like raised him in the suburbs, then yeah, that wouldn't be as emotive. Yeah, but it could, you could write you could hypothetically write a good song about that. It just wouldn't be as emotive. I guess our, maybe our <laughs> you're ma- like no. no well, I mean, I, I think maybe our models of good songs are different. I, I'm not sure that you can write a you can write like a good song for that subject matter, but it may never be as good. Like, yes, you could make a good movie about like nothing happening, but it wouldn't wouldn't be as good as even a bad movie about something happening. I don't know. Seinfeld's a pretty yep. good show. Was okay. Touche. Touche. I'll, I'll, I'll give you that one. 